ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is It is 2021, and the Dawn Patrol on Hard to Pain with David Grubb has returned for your listening pleasure. With me, as we do each and every Wednesday, is my brother Ross Jackson. Happy New Year to you, sir. Happy New Year, man. Glad to be here with you. We made it. We're out of 2020. We're into 2021. Um, I haven't decided yet if it's better or worse. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm giving it time. I'm giving it time. You go from... Dr. Dre having a brain aneurysm right. to Georgia election results to people throwing COVID vaccines away. Right. To, like it's, man, I thought we, you know, like time is, right. it's, right. I, we, we talked about this. It's arbitrary and yes, renewal is something that we want, but dang, 2021, let's, let's get some momentum already. Right, right. Like you, we're not going to be able to mark this just by the turn of the year. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's got to be marked moment by moment. And so far the moment by moments have been up and down and that goes for society as a whole, but also of course for the new Orleans Saints. Yes. And uh, so the Saints finished the season with a very easy win over the Carolina Panthers. Um, I think the place to start with that game is obviously with the defense. Five mm-hmm. interceptions, three sacks, pressures all day. Uh, they gave up some chunks late, you know, to Curtis Samuel, who is just a phenomenal player and somebody mm-hmm. that you also have had your eye on too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that that was a great way for the defense to end the season uh, and get that top five finish yeah, in a number of categories, not only top five in the NFL, but top five in points allowed, mm-hmm. yards allowed, passing yards, rushing yards, rushing TDs, yards per attempt, interceptions. They're there. Um, just yeah. a, a phenomenal season for the Saints defense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we talked about it way back in August where Alex Anzalone had mentioned and it was echoed by Dennis Allen that their goal for this defense year in and year out is to be a top five defense across multiple categories is the way that they explained it. As you just mentioned, they absolutely did that. Uh, even in those you know, places that are about playmaking, right? Uh, they didn't get there in sacks. They had 45 sacks on the season, which was a little disappointing because they had their first 50 sack season under Peyton last season. And we expected that this defensive line only got better coming into this year, but they didn't underperform by any means. They were still tied for seventh in the NFL there. So just outside of the top five, but you look at interceptions, turnover differential and total takeaways, they're top five in all those categories as well. Um, you know, you look at completion percentage, they allowed the second lowest completion percentage on the season. So this is not a pass defense that we're used to talking about when it comes to New Orleans Saints or have gotten accustomed to talking about. So I, I just think that this, this team has done a really good job setting the goals uh, hitting their benchmarks all throughout and then ultimately achieving those goals. And again, there are places where they haven't red zone defense, uh, third down percentage sacks, pressure, pass rush, all that stuff. But there's time to continue to to cultivate all of that as they get into the playoffs, figure out how to, to get those things righted as they go through the postseason, And then to finish off the season, tying the franchise record with five interceptions, it's a great look. This is a team that started off the season. I think it was the first seven games. If I remember correctly, only had four interceptions there and then the next four games they had nine the next four games they had zero and then the last game they get you know five in a game and so you know it's good momentum heading into the postseason for certain so it's kind of like peaking at the right time even if you don't have all your pieces 
And, and what you have to like too is again when you and you can use this on both sides of the Saints roster. We mm-hmm. and we'll get into it, but the fact that they have had so many guys in and out of the lineup, whether it's right. been on the defensive line, in the linebacking core, and in the secondary, there have been missed games by vital contributors at key points of the season, and yet they were consistent throughout. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's been incredibly impressive about this team is their ability to recalibrate regardless of who's in the lineup. Um, Grant Haley played his first snaps as a New Orleans Saint the day after being elevated from the practice squad, led the team in tackles and had an interception. Now, he did struggle early, right? He had to settle in, but no big surprise there to, to see that be the case. But this is a team that leapt uh, Ken Crawley, who's been on the roster all season, they had the option to put Ken Crawley on the outside and then move Janoris Jenkins to the inside because Janoris Jenkins could play in the slot well. And instead, they went with Grant Haley in the slot as their nickel corner, and he had a, a fantastic game. And they've been able to mesh, recalibrate, and and you know find ways to work cohesively with players that have never seen their system before, right? Have never executed their system on the field before. So you have to imagine that coming into the playoffs here where they're expecting to get so many pieces back. You know, we saw the news this morning that Michael Thomas is indeed expected to be back for this game, which no surprise there, but you, it it kind of lessens my concern about how quickly can they get the chemistry going? How quickly can they get on the same page? Because they've been able to get on the same page with people who have never seen the field for them before. Uh, So I'm pretty comfortable with the idea of, you know, getting some of your best pieces back at this point. Ty Montgomery, we've been waiting for him Mm -hmm. all season. Um, He gets his opportunity. And I thought he might get maybe a couple carries, you know, just to (laughs) see if he was – dude goes out and puts up three digits. Right. I was – you know, that's an incredibly – that's a gift – to get mm-hmm. at the end of the season to know that you have a guy who could do that right. in a game that the other team was not laying down in. Right. He was out there and he was, I mean, his yards per carry was high. His movement looked really good. He didn't look mm-hmm. like it. he had any rustiness. His He was fluid. I was just really impressed by uh, the way Tom Montgomery looked in that game. Yeah, I think over the last two weeks, we've gotten a really good look at him in multiple roles that he can serve. We've seen him as a returner. We've seen him break off a, a big return against Minnesota. We've seen him as a receiver when they were down every receiver in, in the book. We've seen him now as a running back when they were down the entire running back room. And I think only Friday or Thursday being told you're the guy now and only having a couple of days to get into the game plan. Shout out to the offensive line yet again. The offensive line continues to play out of its mind in the run game and paving the way for whoever is back there. I could have been back there and I could have gotten at least six yards, which is saying something because under usual circumstances, I would have gotten hurt. And so it's, you know, it's, it's nothing and it's, it's been a great, you know, they've done a great job over on the offensive side, uh, over on the offensive line. And I think it's great to see Ty Montgomery in all these roles here because now all of a sudden you've proven yourself as a weapon and as another wrinkle going into the playoffs where we talked about the Saints save stuff for the playoffs. We haven't, there, there's a lot of things that we expected to see at different points throughout the season that we haven't seen yet. You know, we did see them take the the shield screen from Kansas city and do it like immediately the week after it ain't work. But uh, you know, but there's still some things that we're expecting to see in terms of trickiness here and there, special teams, things. And then now you have this time Montgomery um, piece that has proven to be exactly what we had hoped he could be early in the season. He's now shown up later in the season. So it's kind of nice to have that surprise, I guess you could say, or that next wrinkle, that next element going into the playoffs here. And then got to talk about Marquez Callaway. Yeah, man. Like, this is one of your favorite guys. And mm-hmm. to see him mature um, and look like he's turning into something 
is is exciting to have for receiving core that yeah Emmanuel Sanders is is a very good player but he's on the right. other side of 30 I mean it's just mm-hmm. so you need those young guys to step up and Marquette Marquez Callaway looks like he could be the next one in that group yeah absolutely I mean he's your next undrafted free agent diamond in the rough I guess you can say along with guys that are already you know on the team on the defensive side but to see him come along the way that he has as quickly as he has you know he opened up his season really against the San Diego, geez, the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, but, you know, the big game for him was the eight-catch game against Carolina uh, at earlier on in the season where he really got thrust into action and then he got hurt. Um, you know, but to see him go out there and and play the way that he did in every element of the game, um, to see him as a run blocker as well, he does such a phenomenal job in that element. Uh, and then now he's also becoming one of a, a target that Drew Brees is very comfortable with. I think you're right. You look at him as somebody that has been impactful this year. You can project that out into what your expectations are for him for the future, because that's really the important part because Emmanuel Sanders may be here next season. He may not be. Um, He certainly, I don't think will be here the season beyond that. And then, so you have a guy like Marquez Calloway, who's just going to continue to continue to develop. He doesn't look like he's slowing down at any point. Uh, Eventually he'll plateau, but where that plateau is feels pretty high for the saints. And you're going to welcome that, especially with the you know cap situation being what it's going to be next season and everything, not just for the saints, but for everybody across the NFL. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm massively impressed by the development that he's had. And I look forward to seeing where he continues to go and how he continues to contribute in the playoffs. Emmanuel Sanders gets his bonus because he got 60 catches and it was, <laughs> it's cool to see on the field, whatever. And, that, and that's right. that teammates reacting and I get it. But it bothers me every year when I see this stuff in, in the last week of yeah. the season that, you know, you saw it in Seattle where um, Russell Wilson had to decide not to take a knee to get a receiver another catch so he could get his bonus. Mm-hmm. I do not like individualized bonuses in these contracts because they, again, this is the stuff that fans say that they they want people to be team first. They want them to be focused on what they can do for the team. And yet you put these individualized incentives. Well, how do you think Emmanuel Sanders would have felt if he gets 59 catches? Yeah. And he's going to look back over the course of the season, over all the tape. He's going to be like, should have had a catch there. I should have had a catch there. These are the things that take you out of the moment, that make you think Mm -hmm. about your check. And I don't like that contract structure of it. And I don't like the fact that those very same numbers, that if he didn't make them, somebody would use those against him in evaluating his season, mm-hmm. not his contribution as a whole, but those numbers. Right. And I think that, you know, that is one of the things in the NFL that just really bothers me. Sure. Uh, I very much am one of the people that loves incentives in, in contracts. I very much am one of those people. And, and the reason why I mentioned that is because there's the immediate reciprocity of your production in that moment, as opposed to the production happening. And then it goes to your next contract where somebody has to evaluate numbers from a year before in this moment where you've reached that level of production, I believe you should be rewarded for that. But I'm also at the same time, I don't care if a guy is team first personally, I I'm, I'm all about people individually being invested in their own success. And the fact that that inherently provides betterment for the team. That's up to the coaches and the culture of the team and the front office to take all of the individual people that come into a locker room and then band them together. I, I don't care if there's a player that is, you know, worried about his brand. As oh, no, get your money. No, no. Yeah, no, no. I'm just saying that, like, the, the reason why I... I do like the incentives is because I'm about the individual production as opposed to the people that are like, 
oh, I love seeing this, you know, we're taking care of the players, blah, 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 but also want to see the players be team first and team oriented. Like, well, I'm just thinking of it from the, yeah. like, if you're Emmanuel Sanders and let's say instead of Taysom Hill at backup, you end up with um, what the Broncos had, you know what I mean, for, uh-huh. for a while. And your numbers, you don't get your 60 catches because that changed. You know right. what I mean? It's not on you. You you showed up every week. You ran your route. You did your work. But I didn't get paid because the, the team let me down in another way. Yeah. You know, if the offensive I, line falls apart or if the quarterback goes it ruins the situation, I get it. I want guys to get their individual dollars. But it's also a thing where, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. It kind of yeah. forces you to have two competing mindsets. It's like I want to do everything I can to help my team win. But part of that means – put the ball in my hands. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, if I don't absolutely. get the ball, I don't get the check. I right. want all those things to be thought of. But at the same time, it's just like, I don't want to be putting players in the position of having to decide on the last game of the season, how do I get another teammate his money? Yeah. And you I think I mean? that that's, I think that that's absolutely fair, particularly like the, the Russell Wilson situation and things like that. Like this situation for the saints, that's your number one receiver in this game you're going to get him those catches. You're, I mean, he's a huge part of the game plan either way. Uh, right. There were a couple of times where Drew Brees clearly was forcing the ball to Emmanuel Sanders and people are going to point at those and say, all oh, those are turnover worthy. And we know what that's really about. So I, I get the decision-making factor behind it. The one thing that I do want to say though, is that when it comes down to like looking back at the season and being 59, you know, being one catch short, uh, I think that there's, there's some understanding there too about like, if you look at Emmanuel Sanders season, how many drops does he have? How many times does he have those situations where the team didn't cost him that money, but the ball was in his hands and he cost himself that money. You know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not saying that there's like a bunch of evidence of that, but I'm just saying that there are always with any receiver, there are those catches that you can also point to as well. So I think there's a big difference too coming in needing eight catches versus coming in needing 15 catches. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the other part of it too, that I, I would probably take into consideration is that like, if you didn't do your job up to that point anyway, I can't help you. I can't, I can't cram. focus you on can't cram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't focus on getting you 20 catches in this game, you know right. what I mean? Or whatever. So I, I think that there's, there's a, a place where it's understandable, but you're absolutely right that there's a place to where it does end up costing the team more than it actually gains the player. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, I guess we have to talk about it in this regard. It's probably Drew Brees' last regular season game. Yes. And he's going to finish his career with a regular season touchdown pass to Austin Carr. And I can't think of anything more perfect than that. I mean, that is, that is a hundred percent Drew Brees' legacy, right? Like making something out of nothing or not nothing. Let me not talk about Austin Carr like that, but you know what I mean? Like making something of these, you know, undrafted players, these practice squad guys, stuff like that. Like that's, that's been such a big part of his narrative. The narrative around what does make him great is always around the idea that he elevates the players around him. I think that recently over the past few years, there's not a lot of evidence for that. Uh, And it's been that the team has supplemented talent around him, but I think that you can look at certain games to where that happened. And you certainly saw that in this one. You've seen that here recently without Michael Thomas. You've seen that in the, there was the four touchdown game against Atlanta on Thanksgiving to where he threw a touchdown to an undrafted player in each one of those things. Yep. So like there, there's certain moments in that to where you can still notch it and you can clock it over the past couple of seasons. But the Saints have done a good job continuing to build around him and have done a good job now creating a vehicle that either he can drive or that can drive him to potentially riding out in the sunset with, you know, uh, another 
championship, but they have a long way to go here, obviously having to play in the wild card round, everything like that. But I think when you talk about, you know, when you sum up everything that he has done so far, him starting off his, you know, career with the New Orleans Saints, throwing a touchdown to a seventh round draft pick and then finishing up during throwing to an undrafted free agent. I think that's a, there's, there's nice symmetry there in terms of closing out the year for or closing out the career for him. Was it, you know, it was very emotional on Twitter. Were you, you know, feeling anything, you know, realizing it, it, it it just seems to me like it's, it's just, it's the, it's the season as a whole. The regular season is not something that, a lot of us are going to spend a lot of time thinking about because right. the goal for this team is always the, 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 the end game, the Super Bowl. Yep. Um, so yeah, it just, it didn't feel that climactic. For me. Yeah. I, I think that there's that right to where like some of us are calibrated for Like this is a playoff team. There's still more games to play. So this isn't in, entirely uh, important at the moment, <laughs> but there's also the expectation that that was going to be the case the entire time this season. And so there are some people that were surprised by it. There were other people like, like I think both of us that were very much ex- expecting that that would be the case anyway. And so, you know, when the tweet came out and when it was talking about the Adam Schefter report and what Adam Schefter said it, I think some people had, you know, a, Oh my goodness, taken aback kind of a response to it. And then other people kind of had like a duh kind of response to it you know and I think that I was more of the latter because I think I've expected this to be I mean you look at the UCL tear from last year you look at the um you look at the you know heavy contemplation over the offseason uh you look at the actions around the Pro Bowl to where you know Russell Wilson gave up his starting position in the Pro Bowl for him uh you look at the 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 injuries this season I, I just think that there's and COVID as a whole, which changes everybody's perspective, period. Um, I think that all of those things combined and then here uh, another successful regular season going into the postseason for hopefully a successful postseason here, all those things just point to it's time, you know, for Drew Brees. So it wasn't a huge surprise to me either. How do we frame the last four regular seasons, though, for the Saints? I, You know, that was one of my questions for folks was just, Looking at all of this, how they got here the last few years, what they've had to overcome, how do we how do we frame the last four years if they don't end with a championship? Yeah, I think for me, they are framed as it's tough, right? Because you want to give them credit for the successful regular seasons because they're one of the most winningest teams over the last four years. But then also they haven't been able to do anything with that going into the postseason. So I think that the narrative is always going to be around a team that was close. That's always going to be kind of kind of the narrative. If I'm summing it up, I'm summing it up as a successful season or as successful seasons in a successful era, because most teams would kill to just have double digit wins for four seasons in a row. This is a team that's long go to 12 and four, 13 and three. Right. <laughs> Right. Like that's, that's something that most NFL franchises would, you know, they'll do whatever for, you know? And so you look at that, you look at the fact that they've won the NFC South division for the last four years, they've dominated their division. They just swept the division for the first time in NFC South history since it became, you know, a part of the, the, the fold. And so it's, I think that that's what I look, I look at it as a success. Uh, but I understand why folks would look at it as disappointing at the same time. It, it's a strange sort of weird line to walk, depending upon what you use to define it all. Um, quickly, let's do this. Uh, regular season awards, um, mm-hmm. MVP for the Saints. Oh, I have to say Alvin Kamara. That's I have to say Alvin Kamara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just I know he didn't get his thousand yard season thanks to COVID. 
uh, or thanks to him and COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he didn't get his thousand yard rushing season, but I mean, 21 touchdowns, franchise record, leading the NFL there. Um, you know, everything that he did, erasing, losing Drew Brees, or not really erasing because Taysom Hill didn't throw the ball to him, but you know, erasing, not having Michael Thomas, all of those things that he was able to do, bouncing back off of what he, you know, the production that he had last season and just the, his explosiveness, everything, all of the ability that he has, where he can line up and where he can affect the game. He's, he's the most valuable player for the Saints. And really went back from being like cult hero to superstar. Yes. Like this is the year that it was New Orleans had it and, and had and understood what it had. But now I think nationally, there's mm-hmm. a whole different perception of Alvin Kamara as yeah. a player um, and his value going forward. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the, the NFL top 100 comes out next year. I, I, I'm really going to be, cause I hate that list. Cause I think the players yeah, do a too. terrible job, yeah. but yeah, it's going to be, I, I want to see where they put Kamara on that list. Yeah. Um, offensive player of the year. I had to go with Kamara again there too. Yeah. I mean, just, he's the most, he was just, he's the, the most consistent and significant player this season on offense. Yeah. Uh, I'll vary it up a little bit. I'll give some shine to another offensive player. I'll go with Teron Armstead. Teron. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about Teron. Yeah. Because yeah. our friend Nick Underhill has said that maybe the last couple of weeks, he's been the best player in the NFL period. Yeah. He's been, <laughs> he's been outstanding, man. Like he's just remarkable. I mean, he has, he has dominated any competition that you put in front of him over the last few weeks. It doesn't matter who lines up in front of him, what you try to do, how many people you send. None of it matters. None of it matters. He has done a, a phenomenal job as a pass blocker and an even better job, I think, as a run blocker, uh, running people back to Minnesota, for instance, and things like that. Like he he has just been playing out of his mind and he has been consistent all season. Like Ryan Ramchick had a little bit of a drop in this one. Cesar Ruiz has struggled in his adjustment. Uh, Andrew Peters had his ups and downs. Uh, Eric McCoy had a moment where he dropped off in production. Teron Armstead has been consistent all season and consistently incredible all season and is only getting better at the right time. I mean, he is playing a ridiculous and ferocious brand of football right now that is incredibly uh, promising moving into the playoffs. So I I think that there's so much that doesn't happen without him Uh, at an earlier point in the season and the midpoint of the season, I actually went with Ryan Ramchick here as evidenced by the game to where he ended up missing some snaps toward the end and how quickly, Mm -hmm. you know, yards per carry dropped yards per attempt dropped uh, uh, how much the offensive or excuse me, the defensive pressure production picked up when he left. But Teron Armstead has really taken that for me, especially with some drop-offs everywhere else on the offensive line where he's continued to remain consistent. Defensive player of the year. This one's hard for me. This one's really tough. Um, like, I mean, Trey Hendrickson certainly in the conversation. Demar yeah. Davis in the conversation. Um, Janoris Jenkins could get some consideration there as well. Right. But it's 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 hard because I no one really had sixteen weeks of right. of that kind of high level performance. Uh, who who would you? To me, it feels like you still kind of got to give it to Demario just for the amount of responsibility that he carries. Yeah. yeah. And just he had to play with different guys alongside of him. And at times when the secondary was not at its best, mm-hmm. he really had to do more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think Demario Davis is a good good choice. Um, I think Trey Hendrickson's a great choice. Obviously, 13 and a half sacks tied with Aaron Donald, second in the league. A lot of those came by way of 
you know, production from elsewhere on the, on the, on the defensive line that he was able to take advantage of, but you saw toward the end of the season, he was just winning. He was just winning one-on-ones. Um, but with that former point, I'll actually, I'll go to a third option and I'll, I'll, I'll throw some love to David on Yamada. Um, David on Yamada is probably the one defensive lineman that was consistently great all season. But because he plays in the interior defensive line, it's not as visible, right? But racking up 46 pressures on the season from the defensive interior, when you have a guy like Marcus Davenport, who is an edge rush, pass rush specialist, racking up 34 on the season, David Onyemata played a remarkable season uh, all throughout. And I think that his ability to help create for other players uh, his ability to line up anywhere on the defensive line and be effective, his ability to uh, be effective in the run game and what you saw from him as a pass rusher as well. I'll throw him some love because I think that he was a big part of creating success for guys like Trey Hendrickson, particularly early on in the season, while also consistently producing success for himself. Rookie of the year seems easy. That's yeah. easy. It's Troutman. It's Adam Troutman. <laughs> I mean, there's only three right. you know, in the draft class. So, I mean, but Troutman established himself and he looks like the future at that mm-hmm. tight end position and not just as a receiver. Like you said, when he came in this season, blocking was the question. And he's right. shown that he is a capable blocker, not just a passable one, but a capable one. Yeah. 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 Um, pro football focus. If you, if people put a lot of stock into that, they, they ranked him as the, the top pat or run, run blocking tight end period, not rookie tight end, but period run blocking tight end. So you saw him absolutely become a huge part of the run game. He erased a couple of absences like Traquan Smith and Josh Hill toward the end of the season because of his ability to, to help there as did Marquez Calloway. We mentioned earlier, uh, you've seen him make some big plays with yards after catch as well. Um, you know, he tried to get that touchdown as opposed to getting out of bounds and in giving Alvin Kamara the sixth touchdown on Christmas day, he was like, Hey, you're welcome for being slow. Uh, you know, so he's a great guy, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, and you know, uh, Nader and, and, uh, Brian talked to him on their, their, uh, sports radio show, uh, sports overtime, which is now a podcast with Chris and Brian. But, uh, they talked to him and they asked him what, what's, what's his favorite thing to do. And he mentioned that like laying out a defender in the blocking game is still his favorite thing to do. And this is coming from a guy who had 941 receiving yards and 16 touchdowns in his final season at Dayton, right? Like he was a receiving threat there. So that was proven, but he came in as a willing blocker and now he's shown to be a proficient and effective blocker as well. So you got to give it to him because he, his, his work in every element of the game has been uh, remarkable so far this year. Sean Payton, again, probably will not win coach of the year. Right. Um, but this has to be uh, like the, the last two seasons have been incredibly different to me in just the way that he's handled this team. Um, Sean Payton has, has gone to a different place as a head coach. He's in a, in a very, it's, it's beyond being secure. You know right. what I mean? Like the, like the arrogance is always going to be there. The petty is always going to be there. <laughs> and that's right. what you're going to love about him. But at the same time, there's something there's, I, I don't know exactly what the word is that I'm using, but there is something different these last two seasons that, that I've seen out of Sean Payton that, you know, whether it's from the play calling and like the balance that has been there um, in particular, his willingness to use so many different guys in different ways has always been there. But it seems like this year, there's even more of a, a proficiency to it. Like you're not just seeing one-off yeah. situations with guys. Um, you're seeing them, Oh, we can come back to you and we'll utilize mm-hmm. this again. Um, I, I just think he's done a fantastic job. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that I, I really and truly think that Sean Payton is excited about whatever is next um, post Breeze. Uh, I think everybody, I think, of course, that's not to say that he's excited to lose your Breeze, but I think that the, the challenge, and we've always seen him do this, right? We've seen him rise to the challenge, particularly over these last two seasons. Uh, you know, being without Drew Brees for five games last year, four games this year, being without Alvin Kamara for several games last year, being without an Alvin, a 100% Alvin Kamara for most of the games last year. And then this year being without Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, uh, Alvin Kamara, like offensive lineman, the entire running back room, like everything that he's had to overcome so far this season, he has met head on with, uh, with Vicar. I mean, I think that there's excitement behind the idea of like, okay, now I get to create something new. I get to try something different, you know, whatever that might be. And his willingness to utilize the players around Drew Brees, the willingness to utilize the players around the quarterback position and continue to move around skill position players and everything to me is all embedded in the life after Brees portion preparation of the conversation, right? Um, if he can achieve all of this with all of these different players it makes it a little bit easier to move to a new quarterback because your system isn't completely based upon who you're, who's your signal caller. Now, all of a sudden you have a put, you have, like we mentioned before, you have a vehicle that the quarterback can drive, but also that can drive the quarterback if needed, obviously having, you know, our, our MVP Alvin Kamara definitely helps with that. Uh, no doubt. But I mean, it's tough. And, and I do think that Sean Payton deserves at least some clout in the conversation when it comes to when it comes to coach of the year because of what he's overcome not just this season but also last season. I know you're not supposed to supposed to take into account, but they always do. And so you know you can look at like Brian Flores who has a roster that outperformed itself, which is great. Has a team that outperformed its roster, which is usually the hallmark of a coach of the year, but then also faltered late. You know, and he's made some wonderful decisions in terms of the way that he's rotated these quarterbacks and when to make the decision. He has been so on point with all that all season until he didn't get the option anymore. Then all of a sudden he was forced in a position to where it was like, okay, we have to figure out a way to win. That's where Sean Payton has been operating all season. You know, it hasn't been a, oh, okay, I have a backup plan. It has been, we have to use the backup plan now, or I have to develop a plan C, D, E, you know, all, all throughout. And so I do think he deserves some conversation there. I think Matt LaFleur is up there as well in terms of what he's done in Green Bay. Um, hard to ignore a 15 and one season. I think Mike Tomlin has dropped out of the conversation with yes. a three game losing streak for sure. Uh, so there's no easy route, I don't, I think to go. I think maybe the easiest is probably Matt LaFleur because of consistent success over the season. Uh, but it depends on how much credit they give him versus how much credit they give Aaron Rodgers, who like, you know, threw more touchdowns than the team punted, which to, to be fair, Josh Allen did the same thing this season and right. Sean McDermott deserves some credit too. So there's a lot of options in terms of coach of the year that I wouldn't be disappointed in, but I would be disappointed if, you know, Sean Payton doesn't at least bring home some votes. <laughs> Yeah, the one thing you know is that nobody from the NFC East is getting any votes. No, ain't 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 one of them. Not a one. So <laughs> the Saints go into the postseason. They get the Bears. It's the third time they played in the postseason. Zero and two in in history with the, against against the Bears. But both of those were at Soldier Field. So that's not happening right. this time. You go into the Superdome. Right. Saints. This is not the same team that the Saints played and beat twenty six twenty three earlier this season. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky was not the starter then. Um, mm-hmm. But in his last four games, Trubisky's been – again, I think people are overdoing this with a Mitchell Trubisky renaissance. Yes. I mean, he's still Mitchell Trubisky. It's, it's, right. it's just been it's, – it's been good enough. Yes. And I find it 
interesting that people want to talk about the, you know, well, comparing it to the Jalen Hurts situation or whatever. Mitch Trubisky ain't Jalen Hurts. And and not a single way. And this is much more Taysom Hill than Jalen Hurts. Yes. Yes. In fact, that was almost the plan for Mitch Trubisky <laughs> when Nick Foles took over as the starter. Like I was one of my, you know, several appearances with Chicago radio at Chicago was like, how do they do the, the taste of Hill stuff in case the bears want to do that with Mitch Trubisky. And I'm like, well, you can't, but let's talk about it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, this is a team, the, the Chicago bears that has found a way to finally create an offense that's sufficient for Mitch Trubisky and that can produce with Mitch Trubisky, but it relies on ball control. It relies on a complimentary defense and it relies on a complimentary run game because, you know, every throw is close to the line of scrimmage. The, the offense is compacted. And as we've seen with the new Orleans saints, it's doable. You can win with that when you have a Drew Brees and when you have a defense that is peaking at the right time and you have a run game like Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray and so on and so forth. Yes. But do they have all of those pieces in that offense? Is David Montgomery talented? Absolutely. Is he Alvin Kamara? Absolutely not. You know, is Mitch Trubisky somebody that can pioneer and steer the ship that, you know, operates within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage? Absolutely. But can he do it to the efficiency of, and, and, you know, to the efficiency of Drew Brees, can he play to the, um, as safely as Drew Brees, so on and so forth. He's one of the NFL's, and this Larry Holder did a great breakdown of this, talking about both of these quarterbacks. He's one of the most aggressive passers in the NFL in terms of next-gen stats, aggressive pass rating, which measures pass, the percentage of passes that happen with a defender within one yard of the receiver. And he's at the top with guys like Mike Glennon, uh, meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Drew Brees is at the bottom of that list, along with guys like Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. So there's a clear division between the types of quarterbacks that are at the top of that list and the types of quarterbacks at the bottom of that list. Right under Mitch Trubisky, by the way, of course, is Nick Foles. So it's it's the offense, right? It's the system. And that happens when you're operating and you're throwing passes within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage there's not a lot of opportunity for guys to create separation. So you have to be a pinpoint accurate passer. That's why that style works for Drew Brees. That's why that style works for, um, you know, other guys that keep it close to Derek Carr, for instance, like there are certain quarterbacks that can do that because they're inherently accurate, but for Mitch Trubisky, that's not always going to be the case. It's why they have turnovers and takeaways and interceptions, despite what should usually be a highly efficient offense. So I think that there's that element. There's also the element that goes away from Mitch Trubisky that he has absolutely no control over, which is you have to have a complimentary defense that's going to get you the ball back. And that's not going to, you know, you can take a 14 play, you know, seven and a half minute drive on the offensive side all you want to score a touchdown. But then if you're going to give up a two minute touchdown drive on six plays and you're right back out on the field and you continue to try to want to string together these long ball control drives, you're toast by the second half. You're toast by quarter three. And so that's not an efficient way to play football if you can't have that complimentary style of defense on the other side, which the Bears have, have struggled to field recently. This feels like a game where the only chance the Bears have is if they control the time of, of possession heavily. Mm-hmm. I don't see them putting together multiple 60, 70 yard plus drives uh, right. against the Saints. Uh, this feels like a game that the Saints should win relatively relatively easily i don't want to say mm-hmm. it's a playoff game it's never easy right it's comfortably but, though but conditional can it, how conditional is that based on the health of guys like um Alvin Kamara coming back mike thomas mm-hmm. marcus williams 
CJ, yeah. you know, Gardner Johnson, uh, Deontay Harris is supposed to come back as well. Mm-hmm. Um, can the Saints beat this team with 80% of their fastball? Yeah, here, here's the way that I look at it. If the Saints can get Marcus Williams and CJ Gardner Johnson back, this continues to be a comfortable win for them, even if for whatever reason to me, Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara don't make it back. I, I just, I have given up on questioning whether or not Sean Payton can make this offense work without superstars. I, I gave up on it weeks ago and I gave up on it again after last week. I, I mean, they're going to produce, they're going to continue to play the game that they want to play because they have an incredible offensive line and they have a run game that complements the, the passing game. They've done such a phenomenal job with all of that, that I feel, I truly believe that if the saints get Marcus Williams and CJ Gardner Johnson back, that they still win comfortably, even if they miss out on some of those guys on the offensive side, especially if they get Josh Hill back too, who also helps in the run game and is another impactful blocker and, and everything. And, you know, we'll continue to watch what happens with Taysom Hill, who took a, a thigh to the face um, against Carolina and he got checked out for a concussion. We'll see what happens with him on the injury report this week, but, he would obviously be a big loss for them. But, you know, if you get Deontay Harris back and Josh Hill back, but not Michael Thomas or Alvin Kamara, but you have Latavius Murray, Michael Burton, Ty Montgomery now, I feel pretty comfortable with all of that because the combination of Deontay Harris and Josh Hill gives you Taysom Hill in terms of what they can do uh, with Deontay Harris, what they can do as a blocker with Josh Hill. And then over on the defensive side is mostly what I'm concerned about because the same concern that I have about the Saints or that I had about the Saints and whatever week it was that they played earlier on in the season is a concern that I have about them now is the defense needs to make sure that they do not gift Chicago the offense that they don't want to face. And they did that last time. Yes. You know, Chicago was able to attack down the field with Darnell Mooney, you know, winning yes. on the, the post route down the middle. Those types of plays, those big moments were there. Allen Robinson had a great day. Like, all of that was there for them. All of that was at their disposal. They gave Chicago that offense. That's why they went to overtime and they needed a Will Let's field goal to win it. The Saints need to not do that this time around. And so it's just like you said, it it comes down to who controls the game, who controls time of possession. Chicago's game plan to win this game should be what New Orleans game plan was to win against Kansas City. Control the clock, steal possessions, be aggressive. They didn't get a chance to be aggressive because they were doing fourth and six or longer more times than not. But if you see Chicago next week with a fourth and two, fourth and three, you should expect to see them go for it just like you saw Matt Rule did last week with the with the Carolina Panthers. Like you you should expect to see that. And so I think that's going to be the game plan for Chicago. For the Saints it's about get opening up an early lead and forcing Chicago to play a brand of football that they don't want to play, which is one that has to rely on quick striking, catching up and 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 cashing in on possessions as quickly as possible to turn around and get another one. Cuz you you're not thinking the Bears are going to score 30 in this. Right. That you, no. you, you don't anticipate that. So the only way is if this game gets really ugly mm-hmm. um, is for the Bears to have a chance. One of the things you are excited, though, is that the game will be simulcast on Nickelodeon. Shit, yes. I am. <laughs> I'm incredibly excited about that. I cannot wait for it. I know that it's childish, and that's okay. That's fine. I want to watch it because there's a part of me that also anticipates somehow or another. I would just love if you if you tuned into the Nickelodeon one and it's somehow more in depth than the CBS, right? Like they're they're showing you personnel packages, they're showing you statistics based on personnel packages and formation. Like there's a part of me that would love to see something like that. But if it just means that somebody gets slimed when they get sacked and they get big googly eyes, that's fine. I'll enjoy that too. I'm 100 into it. The balance is going to be is like if someone gets hurt. 
Yeah, I know. That's what I was about to do. Like, <laughs> right. Like, how do you make up? Like, how, yeah. How do you dress up somebody getting hurt? Like, do you have the little guys pop out of the ambulance and run on little sardines, pop out of the ambulance, run on and put them on the back and then run them up? Or like, you know, is it just that, okay, we're going to cut to like these kids now who are, you know, going to tell you a little bit about football, blah, blah, blah. And then how do you react with a big hit? Like if CJ Gardner Johnson comes downhill against, oh, I don't know, let's just say Javon Wims for fun of the conversation. And then like, puts a big lick on Javon Wims and you hear that, you know, the pads clack, like there's not going to be as many people in the dome. Like, you know what we've heard all season. Every hit sounds like a home run. I, I, I just want to see how they dress that up, you know, cause I imagine that they're doing like, you know, they're going to be doing a live delay more yes. than likely so that they can superimpose all this other stuff. So they do like a little explosion so that you don't really see it. And then do they consistently do that over the course of all hits so that every hit feels the same? Like I'm really, I'm going to be really interested, like from just like a production perspective, because you know, my other life from my, from the production perspective, I'm incredibly interested to see how they're going to handle this. Yes, and if how, it's ever going to happen again, and if it's going to finish. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that, mm, yes. That, <laughs> Uh, I think the Saints advance with this one. I, I don't see how they don't. It, it would just be to me. It would be a. It would be a huge upset if they don't advance to the next round uh, in this. Um, but but everything played out as best as it could in Week 17 to set them up um, for the postseason. Yeah. yeah, you may have to go to Green Bay. You may not. You don't know. Green Bay's don't been know. known to stumble, but you got what you the best you could get. And it's, right. I mean, if you had to go 15 and one, it just wasn't going to work. It just didn't happen. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sorry. You didn't get to go 15 and one. All right. But hey, I mean, you're there and, and you're in the arena and you would still say the Saints now are, if, if not, you know, they're, they're no worse than the second best bet in right. the NFL. In the NFL, I would say it either right. way to make it to the Super Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's the the Saints, Saints versus. Kansas City is the second highest likelihood for when it comes to odds on what the Super Bowl matchup ends up being. And so, you know, the Saints are in a good position here. They open up against a, I'll say, a favorable matchup or in a favorable matchup going up against Chicago. Um, uh, you know, the game plan should be available for them. They're still at home. Um, Chicago hasn't won in New Orleans in quite some time. I mean, they haven't, they haven't played a lot of games in New Orleans. The mm-hmm. last playoff game they actually played in New Orleans was the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. And then, of course, there was the unfortunate Zach Miller regular season game with the the broken leg and all that other stuff, uh, which is just an incredible story, too, for him. But um, after the fact. Uh, and so, you know, usually when these two teams meet, they meet in, on, they meet in Chicago, in Soldier yeah. Field. And so this is, a, you know, a, a, a different situation for uh, the New Orleans Saints, you know, to be in a position where they're comfortable at home, they're playing this game, and they're welcoming in an opponent that's not used to playing in their environment. Uh, they're not playing on grass, which I think is great for players like Will Lutz and Marshawn Lattimore, uh, some of these guys that lose a little bit of footing, um, Marcus Davenport, for instance, things like that. So it's just it's just a very comfortable way to open up the playoffs. Uh, and it's a good, comfortable way to where if you do get Alvin Kamara and uh, Michael Thomas back in this game, that you can kind of get them in rhythm before next week, uh, sorry, before the divisional round. Uh, I think you have to get them in rhythm in order to win this game if they're playing for certain. Uh, but I, I still think that it's good to get them ready for the following week too. And you have a guy like, and when you have Latavius Murray, right. who doesn't really require rhythm. He just requires touches. 
Yeah. Like, and and I think that that's going to be a big thing for this game too. Like Alvin Kamara coming in and not playing without practice is not a light thing. Like that's not an easy thing to turn around and do. Yes. He's going to be able to do the virtual installs with the team and all of that. Yeah. That's all great, fine and dandy, but I, I would, I would expect to see if he does play to see him a little bit less than you usually see him. He averages around 70% in terms of the snaps that he plays. If he plays 50, 60%, that's because the scripted plays that they practice all week in person during the, you know, first half, you know, opening up op- their opening possession of the first half and then their opening possession of the second half, maybe some of the two minute drills as well. Like I could see Alvin Kamara not being a part of those. And then that of course would lessen his, his load for that day. But the fact of the matter is that, and, and I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times on other shows too, is that like it, Alvin Kamara, you put the damn ball in his hands and it doesn't matter anymore what the play was. Mm-hmm. He creates from that point forward. And so you have the offensive line that you need. You have the willing blockers on the perimeter. You just get the ball in Alvin Kamara's hand and then he does the rest, you know, or, or the team does the rest after the play. So I think that there's a reality there as well in terms of like, he's, he knows, he knows what they're going to call in certain situations and everything like that. And maybe you protect him a little bit from a conditioning standpoint, because again, we don't know, even though he's asymptomatic, we don't know how this affects him longevity wise. And so maybe they are a little bit cautious with him, and, you know, they lean on Latavius Murray. And then you have a guy like Ty Montgomery who showed you, Hey, you don't have to change a game plan, you know, when he's on the field. And so I think that there, there's value in all of that too. Um, let's go off the field. Uh, mm-hmm. pro, the NFL Hall of Fame again announces finalists. Sam Mills, a year ago, we were having the same discussion. Sam yeah. Mills was a finalist. It's time. It's time. It's time. You made a fantastic case before we even started talking. Please just, just reiterate again yeah. why it's so important for Sam to get into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think Sam Mills deserves it. Um, and, you know, he's part of one of the – no, he's part of the best linebacking group ever assembled. Uh, with the Dome Patrol for the New Orleans Saints. Uh, he is somebody that checks all the boxes. He checks the longevity box, 12 seasons in the NFL, despite being a 5'9", 230, 225-pound linebacker um, playing in the inside, uh, putting bigger hits on people than you saw from some of the other players, like a Vaughn Johnson, who was like 6'3", 260 or something like that. Like, So you saw him do, putting in that work. Uh, incredible communicator, uh, the guy that called, the shots for the defense and called all the shots for a very successful defense. Um, he had, so he checks the longevity box. He checks the box in terms of sustainability as well. He only had two seasons where he played less than all 16 games. One of them was 12 games and he still made the damn pro bowl. That was in his second season in the NFL. And then the other one was a nine game season. That That's a strike. That's a strike. <laughs> yes, and that was a strike season. That's right. That was a strike year. And then you look at um, the, the accolades all the way to the end of his season. So talk about sustainability over a hundred tackles, two of his final three seasons, his last season, he had 99. So get out of here. He had a hundred, he had a hundred tackles in all three of his final seasons made first team, all pro and pro bowl, his second to last season, his 11th season in the NFL uh, playing with a Carolina Panthers team that had only started the year before um, you have him being just sustainable all the way throughout. Right. And then five pro bowls, a uh, first team, all pro two second team, all pros, Louisiana sports hall of fame, new Orleans saints hall of fame, 
all of that. And so he checks the box for longevity, checks the box for sustainability, checks the box with numbers, 22 forced fumbles, 23 fumble recoveries, four career defensive touchdowns, 11 interceptions, 1,265 tackles over the course of his career. And most of those were big time hits that I still don't know how Nickelodeon is going to deal with. So, I mean, you, you look at what he did, he checks all three of those boxes and then the cultural impact he had on every team, the dome patrol, the legacy that he left behind in Carolina, all of that as well. I mean, the guy, deserves to be in the hall of fame they didn't do it last year but they this is this is the year do it get it done put hell put put four of the louisiana ties in there for all i care but as long as sam mills is one of them that's the way to do it yeah i mean you talk about a guy that knew everything there was to know about his defense the other team's offense right yes and then you talk about that you when you come into that situation him and Vaughn coming from the USFL in that defense, right. having the established guys in Wilkes, Warren, Ricky, Pat Swilling just coming up, that defense, and then to step into the middle of it and to be the guy that everybody looks to mm-hmm. and says, you set the tone for us. You tell us right. what to do. You call it out. And he did that. And then to go to Carolina, like you said, and take them to the playoffs. Right. Like he's <laughs> – <laughs> Go look at that those Carolina teams at the start. He takes an expansion team and turns them into something. And it's him. It's him. He's the icon that they show. When the Panthers go back and talk about their early history, the person that they identify is Sam Mills. Him right. running down the tunnel at Clemson Stadium, leading that team out onto the field for the first time. Him returning an interception for a touchdown and their mm-hmm. first win. Like Sam Mills was at the middle of everything that they did. And again, he's so important that he has a statue in Carolina and yet does not have one in New Orleans. Look, which... it's ridiculous. <laughs> that Dome Patrol statue needs to happen. This is stupid. There's, there's, stupid this we're now point. on like the third petition because I've done right. two. And right. I know someone else did one, started another one today. Very petition to try to get a Dome Patrol statue. It's just, it's, it's, it should have happened. It's, it's, it should have happened already. It. And what's wild for me too is that like there have been three petitions now, but every time a new petition starts, everybody goes, oh, what a good idea that would be. And so it's as if it had only been brought up for the first time. And so I'm hoping that as it continues to, continues to happen, that people like, aren't looking at it as a brand new thing anymore. I've written articles on it. I know multiple other people have written articles about it. It makes no sense. I don't understand it. It would immediately become the biggest attraction in Champion Square. Yep. If you put that thing down there, everyone would be there taking pictures with that statue. Yep. Those four guys over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. The other part today was that um, our friend Raymond Parsha III, RP3, (laughs) Brought up his his Saints Mount Rushmore, and yeah. I am not a fan of Mount Rushmore exercises in general because they're they're limiting. You right. you're boiling down an entire history to four people, but my four, I took Ricky Jackson, uh, Willie Rofe, Morton Anderson, and Drew Brees. Mm-hmm. It's not an order, but that's the four that I put up there. Three of those guys are already in the Hall of Fame. Drew Brees will be in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. um, and and I think. You honestly, you can't tell the history of the Saints with without those four players. They all represent right. major, you know, Ricky being drafted in 1980. Mort came in, I think, 82 mm-hmm. and was the leading scorer, Pro Bowler perennially, you know, all-time the leading scorer in the NFL for a time. Those guys make sense. Um, give me your four 
And, and then we'll talk deeper into why, uh, you know, how these fours get put together by folks. Yeah. I, I massively agree with your list, honestly. Um, I still think that Ricky Jackson and Willie Rofe are the two best players in New Orleans Saints history, period. As that's where, that's for me, that's the, the two that start the list. Um, after those two uh, I think I differ for a lot of folks. Like, I, I don't think I put Drew Brees at number three. Um, I think I look at players like, uh, of course, like for me, it's hard not to have Morton Anderson in the top four based on the fact that he is somebody that like literally led the NFL in scoring <laughs> for a long time, like for a long enough time, longer than you should hold that record. Right. Um, so I think I have to put him there. So I really agree with yours, but if I'm building a Mount Rushmore, that doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter necessarily about the, you know, the ranking of the four players. It's the dome patrol for me. And that's the way that I usually go when I ask that question, because if, if you're not going to give them a damn statue in champion square, then the least you could do is recarve Mount Rushmore into you know those four figures that are extremely important to me and no one else but uh you know you look at the dome patrol as being this this unit that as you, you know we were talking before before we started recording like you mentioned they went to the pro bowl together first time that that had ever happened i think the only time that that had ever happened um you look at guys like you know we talked about sam mills already but ricky jackson who's already in the hall of fame you've got pat swilling you've got vaughn johnson these guys that were just they represent the resurrection of the New Orleans Saints at a time where people weren't paying as much attention to them. I mean, Drew Brees represents the resurrection of the New Orleans Saints at a time where national eyes were all over. Sean Payton's a huge part of that and everything as well. So I don't want to discount that. But I think at a time to where you're talking about these, this team, you know, 80s, late 80s into the 90s, this, is, this was a team that was just entirely downtrodden at a point that wasn't about you know, anything else ancillary that was happening outside, you know, outside of the franchise. This was a, it was a bad team. Uh, and they took more bad teams to the playoffs uh, because of the, what they did uh, as a defensive unit. So it's easy for me to say, you need four guys to carve into stone. Great. It's the dome patrol because they represent everything. I mean, I grew up with a poster in my room. You know what I mean? Like I've never, you know, I, I don't think if I was a child now, uh, or at any point during Drew Brees' tenure that I would have a Drew Brees poster. But you, you better believe I had the Dome Patrol uh, walking away, stepping away from the Superdome poster in, you know, in all of the rooms that I lived in over the course of my life. Um, you know what I mean? And so I, I think I roll with them. I just say the, the four Dome Patrol members. Yeah, because to me, no group. If you're going to put in a group, there, you know, more, you couldn't do it with the 85 bears. You couldn't get just four of those guys. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do it with the, the 49ers hall of fame, you know, championship teams. Cause it'd be too many rice, Montana, young, all these guys that you, Ricky waters, Roger Craig, but for the saints for a decade, for a decade, you basically as a fan said, it's those four guys against the world. Right. And that's not to discredit the other 49 men on that roster. Right. But you literally, as a Saints fan, went into every week thinking, those four guys can beat yours. Yes. Those four. Just like we have them. <laughs> and that's right. enough Yeah, to legit think that – I mean, you had multiple teams that you thought were Super Bowl and today probably would have been if they had a you know, slightly better offense. Mm-hmm. You literally believed, hey, they could win a Super Bowl – yeah. Just with linebackers. Right. There's never been an assembly of a single defensive position group as good as 
the dome patrol at the linebacker group. I would also venture to say that there has never been an assembly, even at offensive skill position groups. It, you know, maybe you can look at certain wide receiver duos, um, you know, uh, Sterling Sharp, Donald Driver, perhaps, for, or, or Donald Driver, Antonio Freeman for a time, uh, John Stallworth, no. yeah, no. Isaac Bruce for sure, um, John Stallworth and um, and Lynn Swan. Like, Lynn Swan, yeah. bass, massively overrated. I know massively overrated, but the pair of them, the pair of them together, uh, you know, was, is one of the more like cultural cornerstones of the NFL. So I think that there are, you know, duos or pairings of certain teams that maybe can enter the conversation at certain position groups, but I can't think of a position group outside of maybe some of the best offensive lines in the, in the NFL over time that really hold a candle to what the linebacker group of the dome patrol was represented achieved and you know still is there's certainly none of them that are still more culturally relevant than the dome patrol still is today in 2021 to you know the who that nation to new orleans louisiana to you know the fan base the only equivalent might be the hogs yeah that would probably that would be that would be it but can you name all five of them that's the thing that's you know know what i mean like that's that's real like then that's like that's the cultural or relativity, the cultural relevance of the Dome Patrol is so far beyond any other group of players. You know, even when you talk about like Monsters of the Midway, like that wasn't one position group, you know what I'm saying? Like that was a combination of of a very good defense. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, when you talk about a collection of players at a level, it's the Dome Patrol and nobody else. No one else. No one else. And I still, their look to me is even iconic. Yeah, like just the way that they stood on the field, the way that they dressed, the way that their towels hung yeah. on their, you know, from their 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 tugs, and just all of it, the way that their stances, I can I can see those can things see so vividly in my head because no one else looked like that. Ricky's armbands up and down, right. on with the extra padding on, you know, just and those <laughs> huge shoulder pads that Vaughn had. Yeah, as if he needed to be any bigger than he was. Right. Like, that know, was Sam, the game. That was the Sam game. Sam squatted right. down with his hands right. on his thighs and, and just moving those arms and then pat down in that three-point stance looking like he's right. going to run, you know, the 100 meters. And it's just – right just the four of them so different, but the same. And it's just, yeah, I, 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 they're so iconic. And it's just, I don't understand it. It makes no sense. You cannot make it make sense to me why they are not thus honored either yeah. in the Superdome with a, even a banner that had right. four, just four jerseys. I mean, if you ain't gonna retire or whatever, just a banner. Right. That says the greatest linebacking core that ever was and ever will be just something because we've right. only got two of them left. Right. And I don't want to lose any more of them before right. they get their Right, they're honored, man. man. Yeah, for real. I just no. Don't. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. And, you know, we're doing our part, right? We named yes. the show after them. Yes. <laughs> so at least there's that. That's right. It is fully in their honor. I would never, ever do anything to try to discredit that or just to play off of that. But it's an it, like, it's purely out of respect and honor just yeah. to have those guys. They, they defined it for me. They defined yep. it for me. Everything else is, and I'll say this this year about this championship. If they, if the saints win a championship, I'll be very happy. That's mm-hmm. great. Um, but I don't know if it'll ever have the same joy as the first Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So not, it will not feel like that. And it cannot surpass what I feel for those guys. Oh, yeah. No. 
No, not at all. Is, is, it, is, yeah, is it incredibly important? Yes, 100%. You know, it sets up legacies for guys like, you know, Sean Payton and, of course, uh, uh, Drew Brees. But does it... Compete? I think it means, like we talked about earlier, though, I think it does mean more for Sean Payton to get that 100%. second ring than it does for yeah. Drew Brees. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, obviously, like, it has that that impact all across, but is it the same thing consistently than what we saw over the course of a decade with the best linebacker group in the NFL? No, not at all. You know, like it's, it's, that's a, it'll never sound the same. It'll never sound the same. Just watching those guys swarm on Mm -hmm. people and literally watch teams quit. Yeah. Watch teams quit. Like we can't pass today. (laughs) (laughs) like dropping back is just a just a dream right they weren't running it up there were i mean there were games where it felt like the saints were limiting people to 200 yards yeah it's just it and and if we and you had more and that was the thing it was like right more give us 12 right because i think the saints can hold anybody to 10 right yeah absolutely and these kids, and I hate saying it like that because it makes me feel old, but people who became Saints fans in 2005, they will never understand what that was like to have yeah. to hope week in and week out that your team could hold the other team under 13 to 17 points because you wanted to really feel like you had a shot. Yeah, and that's the thing. It wasn't because of the secondary <laughs> in a passing league. It was, it was because of linebackers, which is remarkably like not considered to be a premier position on today's defenses because you try to keep as few of them on the field as possible. Right. We've gone from fielding a three, four defense, one of the most just ferocious three, four defenses in the NFL to now playing, you know, 96% of snaps out of nickel with two linebackers on the field. Like it's not the same. And I've had people who have asked me like, Hey, with Demario Davis and, you know, people were really excited about Zach Bond coming in without, you know, really understanding what this rookie year was going to be for him and the transition into a different position and everything. And Alex Anzalone, you're bringing in Quan Alexander. Like every time something happens at the linebacker position, I've, I've got, I've fielded questions people who have been like, is this the next dome patrol? And the answer is never because there will never be another Dome Patrol. Like, never. Not no. just for the New Orleans Saints. I mean, never across the They did not the leave the field. See that again. They right. didn't leave the field. First, second, third down. All four of them right. Right. were like there. Yeah. It there's didn't no matter. Way to replicate. There's no way to replicate what they did because the offensive game has changed, which has forced the defensive game to change. We've gotten lighter at the linebacker position. You're looking for guys that are, you know, we're talking about ideal linebacker prototypes being six foot two, six foot three still, but we're talking about them being like 240, 250 when we used to field, you know, Lawrence Taylor in the NFL. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, uh, it, it's just not, it's not ever going to be the same in terms of what that that unit did, what that unit was, and what the NFL game looks like now and will continue to evolve into moving forward. We're never going to get back to that that point in the game to where you can say, this is another Dome Patrol. you got one. And the fact that there was one at all is an incredible assembly of talent. And, you know, Jim Mora coming over and bringing, you know, Sam Mills with him and everything. And, and, helping and knowing how good Vaughn Johnson was. Yes. Like he yes. wasn't on his team, but he knew. He said, that dude can hit. I need that guy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible assembly of players. And we're never going to see that again. No. Outside of the Packers today, who would you say is the Saints' biggest challenge should they face them in the NFC playoffs? Uh, probably probably Tampa Bay. 
Um, I know it's a lazy choice, but I still contend that, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, but I still contend that it's hard to beat a team three times in a row. Um, I feel very confident though, about the matchup between coordinators on both sides going up against one another. So I feel very confident about that. Or let me say coordinators for the Saints defense versus Tampa Bay's offense with Byron Leftwich, and then the play caller for the New Orleans Saints being uh, Sean Payton, of course. And so I, I feel a little bit more comfortable there. Uh, but I still, you know, I still think that it's tough. Like it's tough to win a divisional game. It's tough to win a divisional game in the playoffs. Saints have done it before. They've beaten divisional teams three times before. They swept the division this year. So it's completely possible, but that would probably be the next toughest matchup, I would imagine. I, I would like to say Seattle, but I just don't know what they are anymore at this point. Like Russell Wilson, for whatever reason, has really started to slack here recently. And I know that their defense has gotten better, but you know you can only play the, the teams on your schedule and the teams on their schedule have not been great to close out the year. Um, and when it comes to the Saints offense versus any defense, I'm taking the Saints offense. It's just about whose offense potentially gives the Saints defense most, more trouble. And I would say Tampa Bay inherently is that team with familiarity. Yeah, because you're not frightened of Washington. You're not thinking Not really. Them. Like their pass rush, but you have ways to neutralize that. Score enough points, like exactly. Yeah, Washington's best we saw is probably twenty to twenty-three points if they get on a roll. Yeah, and that's not that. If they have to come to New Orleans, I don't see that being enough. Mm -hmm. I just I couldn't see that being enough. And yeah, pass rush is fine and all, but Sean Payton loves it when you blitz. Like please, more blitzes, please. But Drew Brees loves it when you blitz. Thank you. We'll take care of that. Yeah. Uh, so, and that pressure comes from the ends much more so than the middle, which is the best place when you're going to attack Drew Brees. Is he hates Absolutely. pressure at the middle? The ends he can deal mm-hmm. with, but that middle is where he's not happy. Yeah. Um, I think that this is going to be, um, like you said, it's. I, I, I'm not. I'm looking for other things to make this game exciting rather than the game itself. So yeah, the Nickelodeon yeah. stuff. How players get used, those will be things that, that to me, should be more interesting. And if if they aren't, I might be a little bit disappointed because I expect the Saints to really want to come and settle this quickly. They need to end this game quickly and be prepared for whomever they have in in the second round. Yeah, my biggest key for them, I can't remember if I said this already, if I said it, I'm sorry, but my biggest key for them is that they come into this game and score on three of the four opening possessions. And and at least two of those touchdowns, of course, would be helpful. But if you can build a 13 to 17 point lead and then play to get the ball back on a two minute drive at the end of the first half, and then hopefully Chicago loses the uh, coin toss, if you're able to double up at the end of one half and at the top of the next, and you already have a two score lead or even just a, you know, a one score lead, that's a good situation for the saints to be in. And, you know, a lot of the times when we look at, we talked about how we would look back at the last four years, if you look back at the last three in the playoffs, one of the things that has been consistent in their losses is coming out flat early. Yes. I think they're going to do everything that they have to do to avoid that. I think getting the pieces back certainly will help. Uh, but even still in terms of just being aggressive and what that game plan is going to be, I think they want to come out. They want to score early. They want to, They don't want the tone of the game to be set by Chicago. They want to come out. They want to score immediately. They want to rack up the points. They want to dominate this game from the very beginning. And you can talk about you can talk about the no call all you want. You can talk about the Minneapolis miracle all you want. You can talk about a push off in the end zone all you want. There are plays first, second quarter that put you in that position yes. for the end of the game. And I understand a lot of those concerns, particularly the no call. Um, but for the Saints, they don't want anything left to chance. 
Yes. They don't want anything left to luck. They don't want anything left to a guy in a striped shirt blowing a whistle. They don't want any of that. They don't want anything to go overtime. They want to settle it and they want to settle it early. And I think that that's going to be a big part of what this game plan is. Yeah. If this, if this is a game that we're still talking about with eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter, we have a problem. Yes. We have a problem. This, yep. this, this needs to be over midway through the third for all intents and purposes. It's like you yep. need to feel like they've got it. Yep. And I think that for them as a team, I think emotionally they need that kind of performance to come out and validate in their own minds. Yeah, we're going to do this. We got this run in us because mm-hmm. if it is a thing where they're tested early in this one, if they're tested, if they come out of the gate slowly, if they have to feel their way around, you right. do bring it. And, and that energy does come. I don't matter if it's 753,000 or <laughs> right. the, the millions at home, that energy is going to shift where people start going, are we yeah. going to do this again? Yep. And that's the last thing you want creeping into your head. Absolutely. But I'm looking forward to it. Tell folks how um, you had an article that just came up yesterday, I know, on Cornell mm-hmm. Street Chronicles, and I'm sure you got other stuff coming up to, in the days to come and more appearances as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, keeping busy. It's the playoffs after all. Uh, just put out an article that broke down, uh, you know, the the goal for the New Orleans Saints to be the number one or excuse me, to be a top five defense in the NFL. We looked at where they did it, where they didn't, uh, which is few and far between, actually. And uh, of the places where they didn't, what's most important to get right during the playoffs or, or going into the playoffs here. So that's up on Cadastro Street Chronicles right now. Uh, we have, of course, the defensive line breakdown coming through tomorrow as well, taking a look at all the different things that the Saints did over on the defensive line against Carolina, probably omitting some of the late game starters weren't on the field stuff, but just taking a look at what who they deployed the most, who was most effective, what group was most effective, all that usual. Uh, and then, of course, the betting article on uh, Friday, as always. Uh, and then, of course, Locked on Saints every Monday through Friday, wherever you get your podcast, uh, hopefully after you're done listening here at the Dome Patrol and Hard in the Paint. Uh, go ahead and check me out there. And uh, just finished looking at, I did an audio uh, film study of the three most impactful plays for Wednesday's episode for uh, our film watch. And then took a look at the Sam Mills legacy, took a look at, um, oh, and then did some questions and everything. People were asking about, you know, Jeff Ireland, Terry Fontenot, if you had to lose one, who would you rather lose? That type of Ireland. conversation. You'd rather I, lose I, Ireland? I, I mostly agree. I, I think it's tougher to fill college scouting, particularly this season, than it is to fill uh, a culture that you already have established. But I want to keep Terry Fontenot. <laughs> you've grown so. Terry Fontenot. You yes, know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like you've cultivated yeah. Terry Fontenot. Yeah. There is a level of loyalty there. And yeah. also for him to be the highest ranking African-American on this staff, I think it's vital to keep him. Yeah. And I, was, I don't have any problem saying that. Mm-hmm. Jeff Ireland came to this specifically, and I believe that, and as he should. This is a dude who's right. run teams before. He wants to run a team again. Right. No problem. I think Terry Fondo eventually wants to run a team. Sure. But I would much rather have cultivated Terry to be ready for that role mm-hmm. here in New Orleans in the, in the culture and system that you've built and have him carry that on than a guy in Jeff Ireland who, for all the great things, and has done some fantastic yeah, things since he's incredible value added to the franchise. But Jeff Ireland is built on his own years of experience, his own opinions that he has. And I think he wants to shape another organization in that way. That's fantastic. But I would rather hold on to Terry Fonda. That's fair. Um, 
but it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens there. And there's of course other players that are, I mean, excuse me, other coaches and things like that are getting a lot of attention this offseason, And rightfully so everybody deserves that next opportunity. Should they get it? Um, yeah. no, no, you know, Dennis no Allen exceptions. is going to get good looks at people. Yeah. Carmichael again, mm-hmm. looks Dan at Campbell, it. like yeah. uh, Dan Campbell's already been mentioned in Detroit. Yeah. I know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Fontenot's name has been mentioned in Detroit as mm-hmm. is Ireland. So yeah, yeah, those are teams that are going to be looking and their franchise, uh, Jacksonville certainly will be calling a lot of people. Uh, Jacksonville's already called Terry Fontenot too. Mm-hmm. They're very so, interested in Terry Fontenot. So that's going to be a big one. So interesting stuff to continue to watch. So got that covered over there. And then of course, to keep up with everything, all the other additional appearances and stuff like that, just check it out. Ross Jackson, Nola on Twitter. All right, my friend, we will do this again soon. And as we do, we will stay in contact in the Twitterverse and beyond. Always, Until man. the next time, y'all know how to follow me at DM Grub on Instagram and Twitter and at HITP with DG.com. Listen to the pod, rate it, subscribe, send it to other people you know. The Dome Patrol is growing, and um, we're, we're just so thankful for all of y'all who do listen. Until the next time, for my man Ross Jackson, I am David Grub, and this has been the Dome Patrol. All right,